0: Welcome aboard. We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime. Ready when you are, CB. Action. Welcome back to Monoreal Radio. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are coming live from sunny and warm Venice Beach, California. We've taken the show on the road for the first time ever.
1: So happy to be here.
0: I do, don't get me wrong, I I love our home studio with all of our decor, we do have our window that we look out, but I mean, it's Venice Beach is right here in this, you're looking right out the window at it.
1: Also, New York is cold
0: yes New York Long Island specifically is very cold and damp and dreary
1: we kind of bypassed fall and went straight for winter yeah, I that's feel like
0: kind of just how it's been the last few years don't forget you can go to www.monorealradio.wixsite.com home and you can get links to every film that we talk about direct to the Amazon instant video streaming service they are a great partner of ours we thank our friends over at Amazon. Dot .com you'll be able to watch this film and all of the rest this this is very interesting um it's it's not your typical disney movie for all intents and purposes it's not even a movie that was made by Disney so much as it was released by Disney after the fact. And it's the first documentary that we've ever talked about. This, of course, being Waking Sleeping Beauty. Yeah,
1: we've mentioned it on the show so many times about this documentary about the era when Disney was... Almost on the brinks of colla- of, of a collapse. I mean,
0: well, we just talked two weeks ago about the film that nearly killed Disney Right the Black cauldron.
1: And this is you know, all about the dynasty era. So we figured that this was the perfect time because we've we've mentioned it so many times on the show. We want to give you guys a better idea of what it is that we're talking about, but there is a bigger purpose to recapping it now.
0: Yeah, uh, we're very, very lucky. Saturday morning, um, we're going to be able to take the tour of the Disney Studio. Um, We are D23 members. Uh, for those of you who don't know what D23 is, it is the official fan club of Disney. Um, they offer two levels of membership. They offer a free membership and they offer a gold membership. And the gold membership is like $75, $80 a year for an individual and like $100 a year per family. Yeah, it's not that like bad. That. It's not that bad. But it, it really is totally worth it for things like this. We just happen to get so lucky because they, they don't offer tours at the studio.
1: We they already had this really trip planned. I mean, I think... I think if we had gotten in we probably would have jumped on a plane anyway to seize this opportunity but it just happened to fall during our vacation anyway and we didn't have anything planned for that day we just got so incredibly lucky
0: yeah um just like you said luck of the draw and uh, only a couple of hundred people get in and there's like 20,000 people in D23 so the fact that we were able to get in um, and get tickets for this is just absolutely outstanding so we're we're so thankful and we sing the praises of D23 because it's not just this but it's also like we get invited to movie premieres um, we get discounts like for example we're actually we are go- we mentioned we're going to Disneyland for the first time and we did get a discount at one of the hotels like so if you're if you're somebody that loves Disney and you go to down There a lot like they offer discounts over at Disney Springs um, and at downtown Disney. So East Coast and West Coast. Um, I mean, I sing its praises. We get a beautiful book like. Four or five times a year,
1: yeah, and especially this year too, with it being Mickey's ninetieth birthday, they've done some really cool stuff with D twenty three.
0: Yeah, we've got some nice comm- uh, commemorative materials, but Disney, you've gotten enough of your free uh, advertising out of us for today. <laughs> Although, well, you kind of get free advertising every week, but um, we but are
1: going to be posting picture. We'll post as many as we can. I don't know how much they're going to let us do from the studio tour, but we'll definitely be posting. We're leaving for Disney from Venice to Disneyland on saturday night after we do this tour so we'll be posting from the parks as well
0: yeah so check out the instagram the facebook the twitter at monoreal radio we get to go into walt's office i'm not gonna be able to
1: handle it i was already excited enough to see the lamp at the firehouse i can't even wrap my mind around this i'm just gonna i think i'm gonna cry for about four days
0: while we're out there It would be very similar to your reaction when we finally were able to watch Waking Sleeping Beauty talk about something that we tried to see for so long. And it was like it was like the white whale of film for us. (laughs) And we finally it's such a funny story how we finally came across it, too.
1: Yeah, it had premiered at Tribeca uh, back in was it 2010? 2010. Yeah. And. Uh, We weren't usually I go to the festival every year and wasn't able to make it down there that year. And our good friend, uh, former manager, Scott Benji, told us about the movie because he happened to see it. And he's like, you guys got to find this. You'd love it. And it was nowhere. I mean, this was back before you could pretty much get everything you wanted on Netflix. I think Netflix was still a mail service at that point. Um, So this you just couldn't find it anywhere. And we happened to go on vacation. It was a couple of years later. We took a Norwegian cruise uh, down to the Caribbean. And lo and behold, it was one of three movies playing on loop on the cruise. Now
2: and it's just... at first,
1: we, when we turned it on, we thought it was The Little Mermaid because they, they were showing a clip. Right. And then you heard the voiceover kick in and we were like, oh, what is this? And I was like, oh, my God, I think this is the movie.
0: Yeah, within within two or three minutes, we knew exactly what we were watching, and thank God because the other two movies that were that were streaming Ugh. on this cruise because they just looped the same movies over and over again were Grease, which if you've ever gone to middle school, you've seen, and um the Karate, <laughs> the Karate Kid, Kid, Kid remake with, with the, Jaden, Jaden Smith, Smith and yeah. uh, Jackie Chan, um which is terrible. So. Thankfully, we had this movie to fall back on, but we would, and, and we actually told this story to Don Hahn when we met him at Tribeca this year at the screening of Howard, which I'm sure is exactly what he wanted. This was the conversation he wanted to hear. <laughs> um, we, we would plan our nights around getting back to our hotel room and room uh, room service ordering uh, cheesecake and, and dessert and sit there and watch this movie, and we did it every night for four days.
1: We were just instantly obsessed with it and we would catch it at different points throughout the day so you know whenever you run back to the room for a second you turn the TV on so we really didn't get the whole thing in sequence we just saw bits and pieces which was interesting too because it painted such a different picture of some of the major players at Disney at this time so we weren't getting the full story and then when we finally sat down to watch it it's just such an amazing time capsule of what this company was going through. And I'm thankful that we got to experience it for the first time the way that we did because I just couldn't get enough. Being that you couldn't stream it at that point, it was nice to be able to watch it in as many sittings as you wanted.
0: Yeah. Um, And it it is something where we do have to do that linear review. We really can't just do a synopsis of this movie and talk about it because it's not it's not a movie per se, it's a documentary, and it starts with Elton John rehearsing songs for The Lion King, um, more specifically The Circle of Life. And before we came on, you commented to me that you thought it was interesting that that's where they started this film.
1: Right. I mean, if you know a little bit about the company history, you do know that they were in big trouble after Black Cauldron. So I thought it was interesting that they didn't start there at the bottom and kind of dig themselves out of the hole they started when they were seemingly at their peak but what you learn through this documentary and we're going to obviously walk through this is that by the time we know by the time we get to Lion King and we know it as what it is now everything wasn't what it seemed they, you know, Disney was back on top. They were making money. They were cranking out all these amazing films. But there was still a lot going on behind the scenes where the company was still kind of in danger because of the management at that point.
0: Right. So the graphic that comes up on screen tells us that um, this documentary takes place between 1984 and 1994. The animators basically were kicked off the lot 10 years earlier. Animation was left for dead Um all seemed great, but the wheels are coming off the wagon, as you just said. And what's really cool about this is that an animator and a guest of our show—that's the other surprise for today. Yes, he's coming on in just a little while. Randy Cartwright. Um, he was giving a tour of the studio, and what he did was he had just bought himself a new camera, and he was doing home videos giving tours of the studio to sort of test the camera, but also have a keepsake.
1: I'm excited to ask him because the way that he introduces everything, it almost seems like a goof. Like clearly, you know, these animators are the ones behind the camera. They're doing all the drawings. I would say like whenever he entered a room, they were like, Oh, you have the camera again. Um, So I'm interested to see, I mean, like obviously he wanted a keepsake, but I can't wait to ask him if this was more of like, if it was intended
0: to be a spoof. Right. And who is his cameraman? John Lasseter. Yeah. I So out of the gate, if you're a Disney fan, you're hooked. You're hooked immediately if you know who any of these people are. But it's really cool because when he starts the tour, literally he's about four seconds into his introduction and Ron Miller walks out the front door. And what I thought was interesting was he, Ron Miller walks out and goes, Randy, how are you? Like, This guy was the president of the company, and he knew who he was. Like He knew his first name. And it seemed like, at least for a time, in spite of the fact that the place was in a downward spiral, that it still sort of had that family feel. And maybe that lends itself to Roy E. Disney, Walt's nephew, and Ron Miller, Walt's son-in-law, were heading up the company. And it did have that feel to it.
1: Well, I believe that was a Walt tradition, to call everybody by their first names, because you know, they were, Disney has never been employees. They've always been cast members and he wanted to create that comfortable atmosphere. I think that that's something they've done since his time was everybody was on a first name basis.
0: Right. So we get John Lasseter, but you also see Ron Clements, Glenn Keane, and the most interesting one is Tim Burton. We talked about this during the, uh, during the Nightmare Before Christmas review that we did a couple of weeks ago, as our part of ha- uh, as a part of our Halloween marathon, but you see Tim Burton, and he's just he's so Tim Burton, <laughs> just the look he gives, and he doesn't speak, and he just he looks like a corpse with a pencil in his hand.
1: <laughs> that footage is gold. I mean, he wasn't with Disney for too long, so he's not like a major part of this documentary. But the point is, they have it. You see him younger. But he doesn't look any different. He's still got like the crazy hair, those like sleepy, baggy eyes, and you really don't know if he wants to be there or
0: not. And he you could tell that he sorta of had a very odd presence about him, even with his coworkers, because yeah. when they open the door, Lassiter goes, Hi, Tim <laughs> and Burton just like turns and looks at him slowly and just stares at him. Like, it's so uncomfortable. And if it were anything else, because you kind of tell that these people are playing up to the camera and having fun at work. Yeah. So you'd think like, Oh, Burton's just being Burton. But this was before Tim Burton was a celebrity. So no, it's like, sure. this is just how this guy is. He's whacked.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I'll, I'll give him credit for that is he really doesn't care whether he's at Disney or whether he's doing an interview, speaking about one of his films he he doesn't you know put on he doesn't put on a show he's yeah. just tim burton
0: if you um if you go watch the documentary um i think it was called the death of superman lives yes right oh cuz burton was God, supposed to direct that one. um that uh superman lives movie with that, nicolas cage with nicolas cage um and he does interviews in that and it looks like he's in you know a mausoleum but he's in like his living room <laughs> He doesn't take his sunglasses off, but if you really want to see Tim Burton, that's some Tim Burton right there. Um, You find out, as this documentary goes on, that Don Bluth, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago as well, um, he used to work for Disney, and he took half the animators to go start his own studio, which set back the release of The Fox and the Hound by six months. Um, which is a staggering amount of time when you think about the amount of time and money they spend to put these movies together. Right, and this
1: was already during a time where you know they weren't doing so hot. So you can imagine six months, the added cost, and the increase of the budget because now you're behind schedule. They they really couldn't afford an exit like that, and he took a bunch of people with him
0: when yeah. he left. Um. And they they then do market research research excuse me and they find out that Disney's crashing with teens. Um, the animation studio is in a lot of trouble, and then Splash comes out under Touchstone that ends up being a surprise hit that helps get a lot of money back into the studio. But it's still the animation's in trouble. But the biggest bomb is that Roy E. Disney resigned right from his position, and at this point now, Saul Steinberg threatens to buy the company because he was a billionaire he was going to buy the company in totality and then sell off the pieces for a profit I mean could you imagine if that would have actually happened you know think about it now this guy buys Disney but the parks become an independent company Yeah, animation probably is just dead I don't think they do anything with it uh, live action becomes its own company touchstone becomes its own I mean it just imagine what that would have done imagine the world we live in right now where the parks are different from the movies, which are different from this, which are different from that. I mean, I just can't imagine what's what the world would be like if this would have actually happened.
1: There would be no joy if this actually happened. I mean, it's not to say that everything would have been wiped out. But it's like you said, everything would have become a separate entity. And I think that if they kept the parks operating, there would be no tie into the movie. So it would just be a shell. It would be... It would be like an amusement park. It would be like just going to Six Flags for the day or something. Right.
0: And nothing against Six Flags. I'm a Six Flags season pass holder because they give me great entertainment and great value for my dollar. But as much as I love going to Six Flags, there's nothing like going to Disney. But you're right. Disney would just be another Six Flags. It would
1: be like a day trip. Exactly. Um, What's really interesting, too, about the way that they're giving you this history, you know. As Sean said before, you know, they're walking you, they start with the studio tour. So they introduce you to all the major players that are going to be throughout this documentary. But what's really cool is that there is just so much archival footage. They didn't have to shoot any interviews specifically for this documentary. There are a couple of voiceovers and sound bites that they got, but you don't see anyone sitting down to do an interview and talk about this time period. Yeah. They're using all of the footage that they shot home movie style of the studios, they're using interviews and press releases and they're using, you know, the animations themselves. They're using caricatures that these Disney animators drew of their bosses, of their managers, of their superiors to lay all of this out. So what it really does is it puts you in the chair next to the animator. And you can feel the tension and how scary it must have been for them at the time because there's all this going on with the company and it's, for the most part, public knowledge. So there's about 200 people at this company now who don't know if they're going to have jobs once they've been kicked off the lot and they don't know where these movies are going.
0: Right, and... It becomes a huge culture change because with Ron Miller and Roy E. Disney resigning, because then Ron Miller, he resigns as well, uh, Michael Eisner is brought in from Paramount, and Frank Wells is brought in from Warner Brothers, and... Um, and Frank gets hired as president, and Michael gets hired to be the CEO of the company. And at this point, things really go Hollywood, and as they say, it was a splash of cold water. You, again, to quote them, you went from the nine old men in their cardigan sweaters to having guys using foul language in story meetings. And Katzenberg is then brought in to run production, and he had gotten his start in politics in New York and had worked his way through the Hollywood circuit. And, um eventually uh, was brought into Disney, and they basically said, like, animation, they're like, yeah, that's going to be your problem.
1: Right. Well, that was the whole idea. They wanted these Hollywood types because they were looking at this strictly from a business standpoint. I don't think that they were even taking into account the Disney history and what Walt's legacy was. They were just trying to save the company at this point. So they bought in the major players that were going to know how to do this from a business standpoint.
0: And Michael and Roy, or sorry, Michael and Frank were both bought in by Roy. Uh, Let's not forget, Roy E. Disney um, had two Save Disney coups that he launched in his time with the company, this right. being the first, and the latter one being, coincidentally, when he got Michael Eisner ousted from the company and they brought in Bob Iger. Right. Um, it's funny because you're, you're going to learn a lot about Michael Eisner in this documentary, and I kind of want you to go in there with an open mind. Like This is my ask of you as the audience, if you've never seen it before, because we grew up watching Michael Eisner do the intro to The Wonderful World of Disney, and... Katzenberg we saw him do some intros and some things on television like for um, uh, Beauty and the Beast I had that on my Jungle Book VHS Um, but but more specifically Michael Eisner you know he was the face of Disney and we grew up with him and you know he seemed like hey this was the guy next door that was just really really nice and had a great job and and it's not really going to come across that way but I don't think we should forget all of the good things that michael eisner did do for this company
1: right i mean that's what this documentary does really really well is that like you said we grew up on eisner he was kind of the face of the company at that point for our generation and you know he was a friendly face and he was almost kind of like your fun uncle because he would be down to do things like get in a scene with a character have goofy pie him or whatever it was Um, so by the time they introduce him in this documentary, it does paint a different picture of the guy that we know. Um, I'm not going to say a bad picture, but I think as the documentary progresses, there are a couple of questionable things. Um, But ultimately, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, he did do what he was brought in to do. He he saved this company. He got us through it.
0: Right. You know, he's there is no Disney without Michael Eisner or Frank Wells or or Katzenberg. And the other thing, too, is we saw all the nice family friendly PR stuff on TV. But at the end of the day, as you brought up before, whether you want to admit it or not, this is a business. Right. And these guys were brought in here to make money. Uh so, of course, the first film that they're working on makes absolutely no money. It's The Black Cauldron, <laughs> which we talked about, uh, I think two weeks ago, we talked about The Black Cauldron and millions over budget. And we talked in that review about how Jeffrey Katzenberg went in there and, and sliced it up oh and because it was too scary for the kids. And, you know, they really did destroy that film. Not that the film was any good to begin with, um, but the film just doesn't have much of a feel to it. And... I'm interested to see, and I'll save this question maybe for uh, Randy when he comes on, was did they know at the time what a disaster this movie was going to be when they were making it? I mean... We're going to have to ask him that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that Katzenberg thought it was already on a slippery slope, and that's why he wanted to edit it. And... What's really interesting to me is as soon, you know, they bring him up in the documentary. And as soon as we meet him in this documentary, he wants to start hacking Black Cauldron apart. And if you know anything about animation, you know that it's not edited. You're drawing to shoot it. You don't do too much so that you can cut it out and, and hit a certain running time for the film. What you write in the script and what you draw is supposed to be the final product. So when they introduce him in this documentary i hate him immediately (laughs) just from a technical standpoint and i'm just like how how could you do this you're supposed to be the hollywood person that knows about films how are you hacking apart in animation
0: well that's the thing because he hadn't worked in animation he was doing live actions
1: exactly but you know you do kind of learn as this progresses he was really brought in to do the dirty work because after black cauldron flopped, that's when they kicked the animators off the lot. Um, They needed the building for other things because now, like you mentioned before, they had the touchstone films. Splash was growing. They had bigger Hollywood personalities coming to the Disney lots and they needed sort of a green room for, for all of this new talent. So, they put the animators over in Glendale.
0: Right. Now, at this point, the great, ma- the great mouse detective, or as it was known at the time, was Basil of Baker Street, is in production. And these poor people were convinced they were getting fired. Right. But they moved him out of the animation building because they were making room for these A-list celebrities that Katzenberg was bringing in. But even up to that point, the, the animation studio didn't really even feel like the old animation studio anymore because they said it used to have just basic linoleum floors because that's what Walt had put in. And now you've got people coming in, interior designers, knocking down walls and putting carpet in and right it was right. just like it started to have a different feel even before that happened
1: right and in Don Hahn's narration too he does mention that he was like you're ripping out floors that Walt Disney walked on how could you do that
0: yeah um, which
1: I also think is just such a nice touch too because throughout all of this you do see what Walt the man means to all of the animators and that you know, to me, they're the real champions of this movie because they're the ones who are upholding the company values more so than than anyone.
0: And that, that's what makes this very interesting, too, is this this story on its own could be its own movie and yes. maybe one day it will be. But this this documentary does twofold. It a tells the incredible behind the scenes story of what these three guys were doing Um four guys when you really consider Roy Disney as well. Um, Five, if you talk about Peter Schneider who gets brought in as vice president um, and all of the trials and tribulations that they had to go through but it also puts a spotlight on the animators which, as they will tell you multiple times in this documentary and they're not wrong, tend to get overshadowed.
1: Right. Well, that's what's interesting too is that at this point um, when they're making all these changes to the studio and then moving them off the lot Katzenberg actually was trying to relate to them because after Black Cauldron I think he realized that he really didn't understand this process and that's where I give him a lot of credit is that he was trying to understand however he's got so much on his plate he's scheduling these meetings with the animators at like eight o'clock in the morning six a.m. or oh yeah or on a Sunday so even though you're trying to learn the process you're not really respecting them by encroaching on their personal time or just you're really making them feel like they're not a priority
0: right and they said it was just it had a very corporate feel uh grace great mouse detective gets released does well at the box office does well with the critics but ultimately loses to an american tale which was a don bluth right
1: and so spielberg
0: there's, yeah so there's there's insult to injury there. Yeah. Um,
1: I mean, that's the thing. It's hard enough because you're so invested in this movie doing well because you know what's at stake. But, I mean, come on. It's not like you're even... L- losing box office numbers to a live action movie you lost to another animation of a former employee
0: and let's not forget we've, we we didn't mention this earlier and we forgot to mention it when we did our review the black cauldron lost at the uh box office to the care bears movie
1: yes yeah and they do mention that in the document so now you've got two animations that beat out disney box office wise that that is salt on an open wound
0: Right, so the next animated film that they have coming up is Oliver and Company, and they make the decision to release Pinocchio on VHS, and it's the first time they've ever done this, and it does very well in home release. And even at the time, they were like, Pinocchio is going to be the first. We don't know how many of these we're going to do, but we're very careful in rolling them out because up to this point, home video was also very primitive, right? Uh, either than you know Betamax, but they really they had never put an animated film on on home release. They would just they would put it in the vault and bring it back to theaters for a theatrical run every seven years. Right. So this was like a big culture shock. Um,
1: I don't recall whose decision that was. They didn't say. I I don't think that they did, but that's where you do see the business-minded people start to turn in the right direction because now with this re-release... You do, and, and you know, they're throwing back to all the, the Walt Dynasty films. So the parks are starting to do well, even though the animation department is not. Because since you had the Splash and the Touchstone films to kind of, you know, start digging them out of this hole, they could invest the money as the par- into the parks and they got people traveling there again and right. the merch as well.
0: What I thought, So you can
1: see marketing is what's starting to save them.
0: Correct. And they're using their own properties. It's almost like a commercial for their other businesses. Right. right. Um, what I thought was really interesting is now they did a gong show. But they were basically telling people, come to us with your ideas and we'll see if we can put them into development. Because they were just kind of desperate for creativity and for content. So in this gong show, Pocahontas, the Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast all came out of this, but originally, The Little Mermaid got gonged. Right. They they weren't going to do it, which is sort of ridiculous that they did a gong show, but I thought it was kind of cool, but they said they literally brought in everybody who worked. Like, you could have been a janitor, and you got to participate in the gong show with an idea.
1: And I love that so much. I mean, I, I hate that, let's be honest, it was an act of desperation for creative ideas, but I love that it upholds this company's tradition of supporting creativity and that you didn't have to feel like you weren't a high enough ranking position to come to the table and make a pitch that anybody could do it. And as we're going to see too, now that we move into what I'm going to refer to as our movies, because let's, let's be real. That's what they are. That's what we grew up on. um, You're going to see the input, from so many people and what they contributed to the film and to the characters
0: right because um, up to this point the live action and the parks are doing very well but animation is still in trouble even though uh great mouse detective did well at the box office it's it's enough where they can still develop some of these other films but they don't know for certain if they're going to be safe or not um they yeah at this point
1: uh Everything is doing well enough that they actually started Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but they started it in London.
0: Right. So that was in London while in Burbank they were working on Oliver and Company and the early development of The Little Mermaid.
1: Right. So uh, at this point, Little Mermaid, I believe, was greenlit and um, Peter Schneider, um, they, they really knew that they needed like a big punch to... Uh, to make mermaid a splash pun intended. Um, so he knew of a man named Howard Ashman, um, from little shop of horrors and, uh, Howard Ashman wrote the musical little shop of horrors for the stage. And then eventually it turned in, you know, it got turned into the movie that we all know. Um, but he brought Peter Schneider bought in Howard Ashman and his writing partner, Alan Menken. um, What's really remarkable to me is that um, at the time, Howard Ashman had just done another play and it flopped. So he was looking for more work. And when he was approached, he said, I want to do musicals. So at the time, Little Mermaid was so far in development. um, They did have a Sebastian. And Howard Ashman's first order of business was, he was like, well, why not make him Jamaican? And to me, that's just so amazing that Sebastian's already conceptualized, but it's like I was talking about before is that they were so open to people being creative. You have this guy essentially who comes in off the streets and said, well, why don't we just make him a Jamaican crab? And to me, I mean, like, was this the decision that saved Disney? Because if you don't have the music, if you don't have under the sea, was this movie a success? And if it wasn't a success, then what happens? We're going to talk more about Howard Ashman, but it's just, they brought in a brilliant mind and I don't think that they knew what they were getting with him. And he is such an important part of saving this company.
0: Right. Now, meanwhile, Roger Rabbit's been released. It's a commercial smash. It's a it's a critical smash. It wins Academy Awards. Um, Oliver opens up against the Land Before Time. And wins. So that's that becomes very telling of where the studio is going, because now they were beaten on their last two. But now they come up against a lamb before time, which is a good movie. Yeah. Um, and, and it wins. And Oliver and company, they brought in Billy Joel. They brought in Bette Midler. So they're starting to get that A-list talent to come back in. So they kind of get that moxie again. um. And as you said, they bring in Howard and Alan, and this great video of Howard Ashman in the recording studio with Jodie oh Benson God. directing her. We we mentioned this when we did our first review, uh, our first episode of the show, where we reviewed the Little Mermaid, and he's in there with her, really directing her on how she should be feeling these lyrics, and it does add to developing that character. And the scene that you see is is them working on part of your world, which in its test screenings, completely flopped. And Katzenberg wanted that song and that scene gone from the movie, but it was Glenn Keane who ended up animating Ariel because he really wanted to do her, Ariel. Yeah, it was he felt him. like
1: some kind of connection to her where he, he was like, just let me do this, I got it.
0: It was him and Howard Ashman that convinced them to keep part of your world in the movie. And Little Mermaid ends up becoming a smash. And we talked about it before, like, imagine does that movie exist without that without that song without that scene i mean how how does the how does disney animation become what it is today without that song in that scene like you can't gloss over how significant that part of that film is
1: right i mean howard ashman's knowledge of music and direction is just absolutely incredible and Uh, you know, he says in one of his archival clips that in any musical, usually it's like the third or fourth song and the leading lady is going to sit down on something and she's going to sing a song that's going to make the audience fall in love with her. And that's what this song was. And he fought for it so hard because he knew how important it was going to be to the film. And that's what I'm saying too, like about Sebastian, like he just had such a clear vision of what this needed to be. And he's not even the director. He is, the lyricist and he's just got such an intuition when it comes to these musicals, he just knew what he was doing. And like, again, was this a decision that he fought for that essentially may have gone on to, to save the company? Um, It is worth it though. If you can get your hands on waking, sleeping beauty for that scene alone, just to see him directing Jodie Benson in that booth, because what he's telling her too, and is so important to the song is, um, to hold back a little bit. That you know, you're know you not just letting all of your emotion go because it, you've held it inside for so long. So he's telling her not to really belt it out, to almost like dial it back just a bit so that we can feel the tension with her.
0: Right. Um, after Little Mermaid becomes a hit, um, they introduce the CAP system, which was the computer animation post system, which they purchased for 10 million dollars and basically it was it was computers painting the cells for them and that would add an element of kind of panache you know it would give them that uh, uh, such a clean and spectacular look and the first film that they were going to use that on was rescuers down under
1: yeah it would also streamline the process a little bit right. so now you're talking about uh you know, tighter budgets and quicker turnarounds. Um what's interesting though is that the company that had the cap system was Pixar. As far as I'm concerned, this was Disney's Louisiana purchase because all they knew was that they needed a company with the technical know-how to do computers and at the time Pixar had the know-how but they were doing Listerine commercials to keep the company afloat and to have some sort of income. Right. So imagine you didn't buy that you thought you were just buying computer animation but like you don't do that you don't have toy story you don't have up you don't have inside out you don't you have nothing
0: no you don't have anything if this doesn't happen Um, rescuers down under ends up being a complete bomb at the box office and they pull the tv ads because they had basically given up on it and They've turned their focus on the next film, which was Beauty and the Beast, and because Rescuers was such a disaster, the budget was slashed, and originally it was a non-musical version of the film, but it didn't work, and they scrapped it and started over, and they brought in Howard and Alan to write the music for it. Meanwhile, they were already working on Aladdin.
1: Right. Once Mermaid became a hit, they gave Howard Ashman pretty much his choice of what he wanted to do. And he really wanted to tell the story of Aladdin, um, which, you know, I know we're spending a lot of time talking about Howard, but he's such an important piece of this. Uh, Don Hahn actually did, as you mentioned earlier, an entire documentary about Howard. And we did see it at the Tribeca Film Festival this year back in April. Um and it's, he's just got such an incredible story in his own right. He's fascinating. Um, so what we later learn is that Aladdin was uh, kind of a vehicle for himself, really. There's a song that got cut from Aladdin that was called Proud of Your Boy. And everybody does believe that that was kind of an uh, autobiographical song for Howard Ashman. Um so most of the music I would say about 75% of the music for Aladdin was done and they were like all right hit the brakes on that let's go back to Beauty and the Beast and they bought him on to CPR Beauty and the Beast.
0: Right. And Howard again ends up coming up with the idea for how to start the movie with that yes. that little montage of the beast growing up and and being uh you know as they said a naughty little boy. Um And Howard and Alan win Oscars uh for Little Mermaid, and it's it's that weekend that Howard tells Alan that he's sick. And as it turns out, we now find out that Howard Ashman, and they said it before, he was gay. Um but we find out now that he has HIV. Yes. He is positive. Um and it's it's interesting. There's, again, great video of him with Jerry Orbach and Angela Lansbury in the recording booth when they're doing Be Our Guest. It's amazing. Now, the movie at this point, the documentary is moving kind of quick, so you see Howard Ashman when he first gets to Disney a couple of and about like a year or two earlier not that much earlier when he's working on little mermaid and when they cut to him in the studio like you, you could tell he's visibly very sick
1: yeah he's he's getting thinner and he's definitely more pale yeah um but you know it's like I had talked about before what this documentary does so well is that it just puts you in it so now you're invested great little mermaids di- Little Mermaid's doing amazing, and they've got all this other production going on. You know, they had Aladdin going. They had Beauty and the Beast going. And I think Pocahontas at this point, too, they started the early development because that was one of the ones in the gong show, and they they continued to work with it. So you're all excited because now you know where the company's going, and what we didn't know as kids is that they've got this devastating other issue going on behind the scenes and that they know they're going to lose Howard, And I can only imagine what else this man would have given us, you know, musically and story-wise if he had been able to continue with the company.
0: Right. So they're, they're doing press for Beauty and the Beast, and the press is going very well, and people are getting excited for it, and they're getting excited for it. But as they said, they come into the bleak reality of they leave this big event and they go to visit Howard in the hospital to find out that he is he is dying. Um, and they said that his mother pulled back the hospital sheets and he had a Beauty and the Beast sweatshirt on. And at this point, they said he was 80 pounds. He had lost his sight. He could hardly speak. And when Don Hahn had said to him, you know, hey, Beauty and the Beast is going to be a huge success, who would have thought that Howard, Howard smiled and he said, I did. And that's a very moving moment in this documentary. But mm. the other thing is that um the graphic then comes up and says that howard died he never saw the completed film and this is where this documentary really does a wonderful job of being a roller coaster ride like you're yeah. riding high with them in spite of the fact that you know howard is sick you're riding high with them because you know they're about to have a smash and you are brought crashing down and that's that's the in, this entire documentary is up and down like that
1: it's really a testament To their storytelling. I mean, this is not an animated film, but these Disney animators and Disney producers, Don Hahn especially, they know how to tell an amazing story. And even for as much as we know the company history and we know what's about to happen, they just do such an amazing job of toying with your emotions here.
0: Right, but I don't even know that they needed to really tell the story so much because the story kind of tells itself in a linear fashion. It tells it, you know, it screams to, like a drama. But that's they didn't have to dramatize this. There was enough drama on its own. That's why I'm saying I I I can see this eventually being made into like an like a biopic about all of these people. Yeah. And so the film they screened it unfinished at the New York Film Festival.
1: Right. It was
0: had Beauty cle- and the Beast we're talking about.
1: Yes. They had cleaned it up, um, but it was just the black and white animation over the audio and the score. There was no ink and paint yet.
0: And it got a standing ovation. Yeah. An unfinished film got a standing ovation.
1: They were really sweating it out, too. You know, for all intents and purposes, this was their test audience, and... You know, we were talking about how Howard Ashman really had to fight, too, to start on the Beast as a child. That was met with a lot of objection. Yeah. So, you know, they're coming off of Little Mermaid. This is their next big release, and they want to get an idea for how they're doing. But it was kind of a nail-biter for them. And then it was met with, like, a thunderous applause. And then, you know, it started getting so much buzz. You see a sit-down with um even Siskel and Ebert. Right. Who were like, you know, what are they doing playing this unfinished animation at the New York Film Festival? And then they saw it and it even kind of won them over at that point. They
0: said they couldn't believe when they heard that it got a standing ovation at the New York Film Festival because they said the New York Film Festival. And it's true (laughs) because we're from New York and we'll tell you they don't stand for anything. Right. You know, it's it's a tough crowd. Exactly. Um, So. Tim Rice is then brought in to finish Aladdin after Howard's death. And Jeffrey Katzenberg at this point is starting to become the face of the franchise. Yeah. He's doing a lot of press. He does the intro we mentioned before for Beauty and the Beast.
1: To me, I actually remember Katzenberg, I think, more so than Michael Eisner. Like, they they show the clip in the documentary, but I was... Saying it along with him because I remembered it. Yeah.
0: great story and with unforgettable, unforgettable characters. characters.
1: Yes, and he's pointing out the sculptures of Belle and the Beast as he's walking through, and you know, and they've got the the movie poster behind him. I remembered it. You know, you remember it as a child, but when I saw this clip, it, it was just clear as day. It came right back.
0: And you're starting to see the power struggle between yes. him and Michael Eisner and Roy E. Disney specifically so at the beauty and the beast uh screening for the animators because they have a screening of course before it goes out to the public that's where the animosity between the three becomes very obvious um because michael eisner announces that they're going to build a new studio on the disney lot as a way of saying thank you and congratulations for all of your hard work
1: right because now they're doing well enough again
0: and that's the first time that Jeffrey Katzenberg had heard that they were getting yeah. a new studio. So he's running production, but he didn't know they were getting a studio.
1: That's a huge slap in the face.
0: Yeah. And, you know, for all the good things that Michael Eisner and Frank Wells and Roy E. Disney did, this is where you start to really feel bad for Jeffrey Katzenberg.
1: Yeah. This is where he won me over because now. He's he's learned the process. He is fighting for these incredibly overworked animators. I mean, now they have so much going on. The animators were spread so thin. They're working them literally to the bone. They're putting in 80 hours a week. They're away from their families, and he's actually trying to make this better.
0: Right. Um, now, meanwhile, while that is happening, because he did have a meeting with them, um, and you hear about that in the film, uh Beauty and the Beast opens to great reviews is a smash at the box office. It wins the Golden Globe for the best motion picture for comedy or musical, and it gets the Academy Award nomination for best picture. It ends up losing to Silence of the Lambs, but was the first animated feature to get nominated for for that award, which is an incredible accomplishment.
1: If it didn't go up against Silence of the Lambs, I think it could have beat out everything else that was in that category. And of course, now that we turn the mics on and I'm not watching it, I can't Bugsy, remember JFK, what it was. JFK.
0: Um, yes. Silence of the Lambs, uh, Beauty and the Beast, and I can't remember what the fifth one was. You
1: do see, they play the clip of the Oscar nominations being announced, and Kathleen Turner yeah. does the announcement. I remember that much. And uh, you see what it was up against, and I really, maybe not JFK, but if it wasn't for Silence of the Lambs, I think it could have taken it.
0: I think it would have beaten JFK. JFK is a great movie, but I I think it could have beaten JFK. I think it could have beaten all of them, uh, other than Silence of the Lambs, that is. Um, And Silence of the Lambs is such a good movie. I know. Uh, That's what I'm
1: saying. If it wasn't that, it would have had it. Um, To give you an idea, though, of how well Disney is doing at this point... Tim Burton has the concept of Nightmare Before Christmas, and he goes back to do it on the Disney lot.
0: Right, and that's kind of the next thing that they talked about was the salaries are going up, Nightmare goes into production... They seal the deal to do Toy Story. A Goofy movie goes into production. And then Beauty and the Beast is being developed for Broadway. So this is the first time in a long time that Disney has had their hands in so many different things all being developed at the same exact time. Right. Now it's the place you want to be. Exactly. And now Aladdin has opened up and is a total smash. And The Lion King is up next. And nobody had faith in The Lion King. Even Katzenberg was saying, um, you know, Pocahontas, it's West Side Story meets um, Romeo, and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. It's going to be a hit. But Lion King, we don't really know what it's going to be. It's sort of a test thing. Nobody had faith in that movie at right. all. Right,
1: and they're in production at the exact same time.
0: And the, the event that is almost as devastating, if not more so, than losing Howard Ashman happens next and the effect that this had on the company it almost affected it more than the death of Howard Ashman because I think
1: it was more visible
0: it was more visible and this without Howard Ashman disney was able to recover but when frank wells died in the helicopter crash on easter sunday um that set off a chain of ev- of events that would eventually down the road lead to roy disney's second save disney campaign to get eisner ousted because now without frank wells there we didn't we haven't mentioned him a lot because he gets spoken about more in this segment of the film than he did everywhere else frank wells was the businessman but he was also the guy that sort of acted as peacemaker and for the most part was able to hold everybody's ego in check. He was able to mediate between the three of them. Correct. And without him there, they no longer had that mediator. And his memorial service, it's very uncomfortable. Yes. Because you can see even where Roy and Michael are sort of butting heads a little bit.
1: Right. So... Michael Eisner does speak at Frank's memorial and he actually does. He gave tear a really up. nice eulogy too. He, yeah, he he did. He gave a really nice speech and um he cries openly and I I think, you know, he doesn't even care about kind of letting his guard down a little bit because he is so upset that they lost such a brilliant coworker and you know, to me it seemed like a friend. He it was definitely a presence that this company felt.
0: Right, and they were brought in together and they did a lot together.
1: And yeah, they did come up at the same time. That's right. Um, And then he throws to Roy to say something at this memorial.
0: And he basically said, uh, and I'd like to introduce the man that thought up Frank and I for these jobs, Roy Disney. And Roy comes up on microphone and he's trying to be funny and he gets a few laughs. But he looks at Eisner and he goes, that's it. Like, where's where's the rest of my introduction? And Eisner walks over and he goes, oh, this is a wonderful man. This is a great man. Okay, and then walks off the stage again. It's just it was. Yeah. uh,
1: Yeah. It's an awkward moment, but that was in such poor taste. And it is rare that I have anything ill to say about the Disney's at all. But there's a time and a place. And this is not about you. Right. He could have so easily let that go, but he didn't. And I'm really glad that they they included that in this film because it shows you how bad things were between the two of them.
0: Exactly. Now, Jeffrey wanted the job that Frank had as president of the company, but it seemed like he was too press-hungry. Like, yes. He loved getting in front of the news media, in front of the cameras, and that's where he and Michael started to get very competitive, because let's be real about something. At the end of the day, these guys all had egos, mm-hmm. and regardless of what they're going to tell you, they all wanted to be the face of the franchise. Sure. And they all wanted to be the one in the press. And Jeffrey gave an interview in the Wall Street Journal where he was given credit as the man who was saving Walt Disney Productions. And it was at that point that Roy E. Disney had basically had enough of Jeffrey Katzenberg. And even Katzenberg himself said that he read that article. I think he was at breakfast with his wife. He read the article, put the paper down, and basically said that, well, my, my fate is sealed. I'm done. Yeah, there. There's no way I can get any any more than this. And even he had said um, to Michael Eisner when Eisner told him that you know he wasn't going to get Frank's job. He said, "Well, you basically told me that I don't have a future here anymore." Um, the Lion King ends up being a tremendous smash. It's the it's the movie that we all know and love. And they have video of Katzenberg on the red carpet at the premiere and he's waving off interviews. So now it's like it's the first time that he's being humble, for a lack of better term, and he doesn't want to go in front of the cameras in light of what has just happened.
1: Yeah, that clip is like the smoking gun of this whole documentary because it's like I said earlier, is that I thought it was such an interesting choice that they started with Lion King and not Black Cauldron showing how the company dug themselves out of this hole. They started at the top telling this story, but now you know why. It has come full circle, and the company is back on top. Everything is doing well. Animation is putting out hit after hit after hit. You know, people are going to the parks again, and I remember as a child, it's all you saw was, commercials advertising the park you Mm -hmm. wanted to go to Disneyland
0: or Disney World yeah I'm too tired to sleep yes
1: those commercials (laughs) um so it's just interesting that like you know we all know what's going on with the company and we know that it's doing great and this is what we remember from our childhoods but this is the part we had no idea about right and I mean maybe The general public did at the time. I don't remember because we were too young. But it's just so interesting to see how well everything is going. And it's juxtaposed against this tension between the three
0: major players. I don't think anybody outside the company really knew. I think that they did a really good job of hiding this. Um, Probably. And it was intriguing because... Eisner tells Jeffrey that if he would have, or he tells, you know, as in his interview for this documentary, he says, if Jeffrey would have just been patient and wasn't being so aggressive at a time when someone had just died, he would have eventually gotten the job. But I'll be honest with you, I don't really buy it.
1: I was thinking the
0: same thing. I mean,
1: that I don't think was, he was ever going to get that job. Like I said, it, they didn't do any sit down talking head interviews for this documentary, but they do have audio bites. And I think this was a case of, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and he says it now, and maybe he thinks he maybe he does believe that Katzenberg would have done well in Frank Wells' job, but yeah, you're right. It's like you say it now. It's kind of too little, too late. If right. you truly believed that, he would have had the job.
0: So the premiere comes for The Lion King, and the speeches were recorded on video by Don Hahn. Usually they're given in person, but he decided to record the speeches. And Eisner gives a really nice speech, but then he it turns out that he was complaining of chest pains after, and he goes and has quadruple bypass surgery. Roy E. Disney gives the most uninspired speech I've ever seen. Where he basically says, I just want to thank you guys for all the work you did on Lion King and, and uh, all the work you did on the way to this marvelous movie. And then we're going to do the next movie. And he just looks on at the, the way camera, to the next great movie. And he, is right. What he and says. then he looks up uh, to the camera and he just shrugs.
1: It was. Yeah, it made it seem really disingenuous. I, I mean, I really appreciate that Don Hahn let the clip roll and you see what's happening in the moments before And after this is going to be cut into the thank you clip reel, because we see that, you know, they come in to shoot this. It's not really a great time for Roy. And he lets them know as much. And he's like, all right, yeah, I'll do it. Um, And there was just no plan, no preparation. And it it came off really disingenuous.
0: It was terrible. And I think that at this point now, Roy E. Disney is just kind of worn out by all of these egos and maybe his included.
1: And you know what? I can't even say that I blame him because, you know, this is his family's company. He obviously his last name is Disney. He's got a lot invested here and, you know, he's probably tired of having to fight this uphill battle when, you know, Walt works so hard and he, he's probably exhausted having to fight for this legacy.
0: Right. And Jeffrey gives his speech, which you can tell at the time he knew was going to be his swan song. But similar to Eisner, he gave a really nice speech and he had a very sincere thank you to those animators. And um, after that, he resigned. And Katzenberg, some of you may or may not know this, but Katzenberg went on to go form DreamWorks. Now, when you see the DreamWorks logo and you see Mm. uh, KSG are the three letters on the bottom. That's Katzenberg, Spielberg, and I believe Geffen. I think David Geffen's the other one. I think so. So the three of them form DreamWorks, which has become not primary, but it's been known for an animation studio. The Madagascar films, Shrek. Shrek Shrek is what really put them them on the map.
1: Actually, I think Shrek kind of put Disney on the ropes at one point.
0: Right, and... You know, it's just funny because it's it's sort of. Then I don't talk about it in the documentary, but when you think about it, that's sort of like a full circle thing. Because mm. Don Bluth leaves Disney and puts them on the ropes with American Tail, and he's doing worth work with Spielberg, and then Spielberg does this great job with Robert Zemeckis on uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit yeah, for Disney, yeah. and then Katzenberg leaves to go to Spielberg and put Disney on the ropes. So it seems like when Disney when Disney does lose some of these great employees, whether it's a Don Bluth or or Katzenberg, twice at least we've seen, they've come back to bite him on the butt.
1: It's a good thing that Spielberg is such a visionary and is so focused on directing because if he wanted to do theme parks, I mean, think about how many of his films were turned into rides. If he wanted to pursue this, he could have put the whole company
0: out of business. Oh, sure he could have. He absolutely could have. Um, and then... They end the film on the montage of all of the films that they worked on in that kind of renaissance era with part of your world. It comes in underneath, mm-hmm. and it is it is a hair standing on the back of your neck finale. Yeah. And what I like about how this movie ends, and we didn't talk about it in the beginning, is it started with um, Elton John doing rehearsals for Lion King, and he's singing Circle of Life. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of interesting that they're going to discuss this entire film and the song for all intents and purposes that they open with is Circle of Life. Right. It's just a very poetic way to start and then to end it with Part of Your World, the film that almost or the song that almost didn't exist and it just tied in so well because now these films and this company are a part of everyone's world. Again, it's a very poetic way to end and that's where, you know, Don Hahn and Peter Schneider and all of these people that helped put this film together and Randy Cartwright with his archive footage of his home videos. That's where it tells a complete story. Yes. I think without question, it is my favorite documentary of all time and call me bias, but I'm astonished that this film didn't go on to win any major awards.
1: Yeah, you almost didn't hear about it because it's not just the incredible story of the company's history which as we've said multiple times now is so dramatic in its own right it's the way that it tells the story it was just so smart the way that you know they did start and end with the lion king they did bring it full circle and the way that tonally circle of life (laughs) the way that it tonally shifts throughout this entire thing is amazing i mean you come in you're scared for these displaced animators. You're nervous for the future of the company that you know and love. You're celebrating their success. You're rallying around Howard. And then you've got this tension between the executives. There's drama. There's sadness. There's happiness. And you feel all of it right along with them. And what I love, too, is that once they've brought it full circle and they've bought it back to the animation at the end, the end credits are scrolling and there is clips of I think almost every single animator that was working in that building I mean there's got to be close to 200 people and they're all saying hello and all waving at the camera and it pays that one final tribute to the real heroes of this entire piece and of this company as far as I'm concerned
0: right and that's where the movie ties up very nicely is when we discussed it before you have the the incredible drama that the four heads of the studio were going through. But th- these animators finally get their, they finally get their their day. Yes, they finally get their their moment in the spotlight. And for some of them, they didn't live to see that moment in the spotlight, which is a, sh- uh, a shame. And for the rest of them, they had to wait 20 years, but they finally got it. Their story was told. And I just feel like this is such an incredible documentary. And if you've seen it, you're probably gonna go throw it in when you get home. And watch it again. And if you haven't seen it, especially if you love Disney, I would implore you, I would implore you to get your hands on this film and at least watch it once. You won't regret it.
1: To the Disney fan, it's imperative that you watch this. You'll appreciate everything so much more.
0: Well, it's time to bring on our guest for today. We're very happy to welcome Randy Cartwright to Monorail Radio. Randy, how are you this afternoon? Hi, I'm just fine. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it very much so. Um, so we've been discussing Waking Sleeping Beauty for about the last hour or so, and uh, we just had some questions about the documentary, but we also we wanted to start really to get to know you because you are so prominent in that picture because they were your home movies. They were your tours that you were giving. Um, so the first question that we have is how did you uh get into animation how did that become something that you wanted to do professionally
2: oh. gosh when i was um when i was in 12 years old i discovered flip books and after doing a couple of flip books one night uh my first first day i bought it went out and bought a little notepad did some little drawings made things work and decided right there that's what i wanted to do the rest of my life <laughs> i just completely fell in love with it decided that that's what I wanted to do and a little bit later I learned that animation was that Uh, so I found I could actually make a living at it Uh, and I was determined to get into animation somehow and if I could make it to Disney that would be the best if I had to just do Hanna-Barbera or some cheap stuff I would have done that I just had to get into animation that was my goal since I was 12 years old so
1: that's amazing that you knew so early
2: yeah I was lucky
1: um, so if we've done a little bit of homework, if we have it correct, you started at the studios in 1975 after graduating UCLA, um, yep. and then became an assistant editor on the rescuers in
2: 1977. Um, oh, what uh, assistant, uh, an in-betweener. Inst- okay. Yeah.
1: What were some of the other jobs that you had at the studio?
2: Oh, well, I was, um, I started out as an in-betweener and then they moved to an animator on Pete Dragon. Oh. And then I was an animator until I got an offer to work in Japan uh, and that just became too good a life experience to pass up so I, I moved to, I I left Disney temporarily to live in Japan and work on a Japanese project for a couple of years and uh, after that moved on to uh, brave little toasters I, I loved Asia and it was being done in Taiwan so uh, uh, I went on to that then came back to Disney but I had learned. Uh, a lot about computers at that time. I was kind of, had fallen in love with uh, playing around with computers and uh, got involved in uh, CAPS, the Disney uh, computer paint system. Uh, and they were just beginning to develop it. I came in as the artistic uh, designer of that uh, system and worked on that for a few years and went back into animation on Beauty and the Beast and Fox and Hound and Aladdin and a lot of other pictures. So I kind of did several things, but that's roughly my
0: history. Now, that's amazing. is this true? Before you worked at the studios, you worked at Disneyland? Yes. So yep. what, how did the culture at Disneyland translate to the culture at the studios, or was it like a completely different animal?
2: No, it was, it was pretty much kind of the same. Animation, uh, I, when I met the people in animation, I really felt like I was part of the team. They were my kind of people. And, you know, I really felt comfortable there. And uh, at Disney Character, there were uh, kind of, there were the entertainer people, and then there were the sports jocks. Those are the kind of people that did, I, I did uh, costume character at Disneyland for three years before getting into Disney, Disney Studio. And um, so, and, and, you know, I, I made some friends there, but not really close. But it, it the culture was Basically the same overall, the company culture, uh, in terms of, I don't know, it's just, a, it, it's always been kind of a comfortable place to work. They always are pretty good to the employees in both places.
1: Um, you worked with Ali Johnson. What was that like? And was there, yeah. there a big lesson that you got to learn from him?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that was amazing. I started out, uh, I was in between on, the, on uh, the rescuers originally. And uh, working with uh, John Pomeroy, he was animat- animating Penny. Ollie was the key animator for Penny. Uh, and Glenn Keane was Ollie's assistant at the time, his in-betweener. Uh, Glenn moved up to per- full animator. Uh, and so I moved in. Ollie asked if I could move in to be his assistant. So I helped him out with Penny, in-betweening his work on Penny, which was kind of astounding at the time. <laughs> To, to work on his drawings. Uh, and then when, uh, let's see. And then when I, uh, I was working on, uh, the, what was it? The, the small one a little bit, just starting out mm-hmm. on that. But Ollie and Frank were going to retire Frank Thomas. Uh, and they were looking for more people to kind of train and move up. Uh, and Ollie had just finished with Glenn, uh, and, um, on as, uh, animator he was like an assistant animator before it was an in-betweener this was an animator training so glenn had moved into that so once again i moved in with ollie and got a chance to work with him on fox and hound and uh yeah i, I it was interesting because i would bring my drawings in which are terrible drawings i don't know how he <laughs> liked them but he would he would go over my drawings give me some tips and points and then he'd just sit back and kind of reminisce because he knew he was going to retire pretty soon to do their book on animation, Frank and Tom, uh, Frank and Ollie did. And so I would, you know, hear his stories about how, what it was like, work a little bit of what, what it was like. But the thing that got me that was surprising, he was kind of like, mm, I guess it was a good place to work. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I should have done something else. Nah, I guess not. It was kind of shocking. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess he he had some hard times where he was actually considering quitting for a while uh, at various times during his career. These things you don't really hear about. It's so you know, working as a Disney animator is it's it's real life. <laughs> it, it you hear about all the the good things and then you know the the great things going on, but people have really good times and then you work for a while and things are not going well and you've got to deal with your life problems and everything else along with it, just like any other job. Uh, And that was kind of a shock to me to find out that it wasn't all, you know, this great career that just gone through the whole thing as a strong uh, situation. It was like up and down and up and down, just the way life normally is. Wow.
0: Uh, now, you've animated iconic characters such as Belle, The Magic Carpet, and Zazu, just to name a few. Now, mm-hmm. as an as an artist, where do you draw inspiration from working on such different characters?
2: Well, I, I, for me, the main thing is the acting, the performance. And I always look at it as a character. In, in uh, college, actually, I started out as an acting major, um, and, and specifically for animation. I wanted to get into animation. But I considered it acting. And so I was an acting major for a while. And then I found out I couldn't really draw what was in my head. So I moved over to be an art major to try to polish up my drawing. Uh, and so, just like any actor, you go through and you kind of. You, well, we always have the, the advantage of listening to the voice. The voice gives you a, a key, first of all, as to who the character is. And you just kind of going a little bit into the character's background, you kind of figure out who this character is, what they've been, what they're, they're thinking of the other characters. You, you go into the subtext, just like you do as an actor, and then just kind of act it out yourself as if it were, as if you were the character experiencing this thing, what would he be thinking? What would he be doing? And you know, and then kind of translate that, what you've done into your drawings.
1: Um, when I was a child, my parents gave me the making of Aladdin book. And one of the things that I remembered that stuck out to me most was there were a couple of sketches of the carpet. And it was labeled with the corresponding emotion. And I think that was such a big takeaway for me, you know, not really realizing as a child, but it was just so spot on. And I think that's why I remember it most. Um, So what was your challenge of getting something without a face to emote like that?
2: Well, um, Ollie Johnston had always done the, the flower sack. It was like a, a little example flower bag, he, a bag of flour he was doing, showing how you get attitudes out of that. Oh. That was my first you know, thought. But actually, when I was offered the character of the, the carpet to animate, I had to think about whether I would accept it or not, because I was thinking, how the heck am I going to make this thing come to life? And it was... I started filling around some drawings, not sure that I would, you know, be up to the challenge. Uh, but actually, uh, they had a story at the time Ed Gombert had done a whole bunch of little quick thumbnail sketches of, uh, the carpet. And those kind of gave me an inspiration on what I can do with it. And I started playing around, starting with his drawings and then elaborating on that and decided oh, I might be able to do it. So I, I went on to it and it, um, it, it was sometimes it, it was not easy because I had to like do, you know, pages and pages of sketches, trying to fold the carpet different ways to try to get an attitude that worked out. Uh, like getting to lean on his arm took yeah. a while to figure figure that one out and get that right. So it just took a lot of experimenting and and uh, playing around with it until you finally get a pose that kind of reads Sometimes I would take the drawings to other people and say, which of these says this to you? And the character to try to get poses that work. That was the just the key, finding the key poses that said
0: something. So we actually had a listener ask us a question to ask you when she found out we were going to have you on. And she says, Her name is Christina. Is there an added responsibility or pressure when drawing or creating Disney princesses, especially with young girls looking up to them so mm-hmm.
2: much? Uh well, yeah. The first challenge is doing a a girl, a human, a naturalistic kind of human. That's always very difficult because, as they always say, when you're looking at a cartoon character, you can do a lot of things. You've never seen a real cartoon character. You can take a lot of liberties with what they do when you're looking at a real person. The drawing has to be very precise. The movement, the anatomy, everything has to be very precise, or you'll instantly see this is not right. So it takes a lot of a lot more work to do that kind of a character, um, and you know a, a lot of the work in terms of what the audience really sees is the story work, and the, uh, they're the ones that are really responsible for how the character comes off overall and who the character is and what the character does and there in my experience there always was the uh knowledge that this would affect people and you got to be careful of what you're saying and we we and you know the typical old 1950s princess that really didn't have anything in her head except Moving around and singing, you know, you knew you had to make it a little bit richer than that, and make her a little bit more of a real person, uh, um, you know, if, just so because you you know how it's going to affect affect little kids and all from the future, so you yeah, You just got to be careful on on who they are, you know.
1: We love Belle. She's a favorite. She's a reader. You know? She's a strong princess. We love her. Yeah. Um, If it's okay, um, we'll start with some questions, maybe more specific to Waking Sleeping Beauty. Um, Mm -hmm. So when you and John Lasseter began filming the tours around the studios, did you do so with the intention of later on turning it into something, or was it just simply more of a keepsake?
2: Oh, not at all. It was, uh, I started it because I bought a new camera, and I wanted to try it out. That's really what it was about. I had bought a new camera. It took... um, 200-foot, 8-millimeter reels, which is very... Most 8-millimeter uh, film was 50 feet, which is like three minutes. This could take 200 feet, and it was had sound, or could record sound, so you get about 12 minutes uh, per reel. And I bought this nice camera, and I just wanted to try it out. So I thought, okay, what I can do, I'll just take it and just film around the studio and test it out, see how it works. So I just brought it in one day, and... John was working next door and said, hey, John, would you mind shooting me? You know, let's, let's just try this out. So I went out there and, you know, we stood out and started. My, my concept was just to keep it running and show a little slice of time exactly the way the studio was without any cuts, the first one. Uh, and so we started and immediately Ron Miller stepped out of the door just by pure accident. You can see I'm kind of flustered in the film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it just started. of, but I, all I thought it would ever be was something that I would see. I, I, when I finished it, I had a screening at the studio and some of the other employees showed it. And I showed it to some friends later on. It was in my closet uh, for years. <laughs> never, I never thought it would be anything. The whole movie we'd occasionally pull out and take a look at
0: right when ron miller came out and he greeted you by first name and like you said it was uh, completely coincidental it kind of had a feel like there was like a big kind of family at least that was that was how it came off was did was there some truth to that
2: yeah yeah disney definitely worked on trying to get the family feel with the employees both disneyland and the studio uh and ron miller was very open he told us as animators um you know you're welcome to come up and talk with me about anything at any time. Just let me know. Just come on up. He was really a very open kind of CEO uh, that way for all of us.
0: Okay. That's great. Um, At one point in the film, you show some animation from Peter Pan, and it was actually you that mentioned – I think the exact quote was, it's better than the magic we're making today, but we can't help that. <laughs> and yeah. I think, right now, this was going into Black Cauldron. At the time, did you all kind of have a feeling that Black Cauldron was going to become what it eventually became on film in terms of um, not being as successful as some of the previous films?
2: No, not at all. It was just the opposite. When uh, The first film, we, I, we were working on Fox and Hound, Black Cauldron was just an idea. We didn't really know what it was going to become. Uh, But when I first started at the studio, uh, in the trainee room, there were two rooms that had artwork in it. One had artwork from Fox and Hound. They were all um, uh, um, Mel Shaw pastel sketches, beautiful artwork. And the other one had all kinds of pastel sketches for the Black Cauldron. And they were just beautiful sketches, very exciting. And we always considered... The the Fox and Hound was kind of our training film. We kind of our training wheels. We would learn that, learn how to really animate on that. And then Black Cauldron is the picture that we would really take off and really make into something special. Uh, And so we were real excited about it. Ron Clements wrote three full treatments for the film. I've got one of them at home uh, for years. And we loved the characters, the, the concept of the characters. The, the, you know, Taron, the boy who, who really th- wants to be a hero and then learns what a hero really is, which is not a big, great fighter. It's someone who cares about other people. Uh, and then Islandwe, who saw through his bravado, supposedly. And uh, Gurgi, who is this little character that they supposedly didn't think anything of, thought he was just an annoyance, and found out he had the hero inside him. I mean, these concepts were great for the film. Uh, also, I personally didn't want to see just a typical human character thing. I, I wanted more fun out of it. I was hoping we'd get uh, more like the, um, the Reluctant Dragon character, a little bit more cartoony characters. Uh, Andreas had just been hired, and he did a whole series of designs of Islandwe, Terran, all the characters, and all these different variations on what we might be able to do. A lot of them are on his website uh, you can look at today and we were all excited about how this was going to go about. And then Don Bluth quit, scared the management to death, and they, they were scared to uh, give any films to any young people again. So they started, they brought in some of, some, uh, they used some of the uh, older animators that had never been supervisors before to run the picture and we were not allowed uh to you know really have that much input in it they took it over and it it kind of fell to pieces that's why i asked to get off it was not going well um i'm going to a lot of stories about that later but some other time But yeah yeah it was um yeah and so it kind of fell to pieces we knew it was not going to come out well once it was actually started and we saw what it was going to be but it was we were so excited about it originally as it was going to be the young person's big opening and it was going to be great but it didn't happen that way
1: um, so obviously there was some drama behind the scenes between michael eisner roy e disney and jeffrey katzenberg um, as the animators were you privy to that or were you just so busy working on the films that it was something you learned about no. after the fact
2: yeah, actually, I didn't learn about how much trouble there was upstairs until I saw the film. Oh, wow! wow. <laughs> w- Waking wow. Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, no, we we didn't know. We knew we knew later on when Jeffrey quit that there was a lot of you know friction, but when they had that big you know employee screening of uh, uh, Lion King, we had no idea that all this was going on in the background. Wow,
0: wow, that's wild. You mentioned before that you had helped launch the CAPS system. Um, now, when it came to traditional hand-drawn animation, how many frames were you able to animate per day individually versus how many you can do now with the helps of this, uh, with the help of these computers?
2: Well, yeah, the uh, the CAPS was basically the ink and paint system. It wasn't the full animation system. The animation was done completely traditionally on paper, and we would scan each drawing and then paint them and add all the effects and multiplanes and. Shaded shadows and things like that with the computer Um, and and now with the CG stuff. It's a whole it's completely different thing Uh, The CG is done mainly with Maya on at uh, Disney uh, their own custom version of it Uh, But yeah, it's a completely different thing. I've done some CG animation. I worked at ILM for a little bit on uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and the first Hulk film uh, but I didn't find animating on computer that satisfying. It it, would, it felt to me like, it's like if you're in one of those things where you have to stick your hand in gloves through a wall and you're looking at a little window trying to manipulate some radioactive thing, that's kind of what it felt like. You didn't where real animation. is like you have the clay right in front of you, you have the drawing, you're really working right with what you're doing is going in the film With the computer, you're kind of doing this distant thing, and the computer takes its own, has its own ideas on how to do things. So I I didn't get that much satisfaction actually animating on the computer itself.
1: Um, That's actually a good segue to my next question. Um, If you could hand draw any Pixar character, who would it be and why?
2: Oh, hand drawn a Pixar character. oh i don't know well i i like the the um, the incredibles characters they are just incredible <laughs> <laughs> but um I really don't know i mean they work so well uh, in their own world i don't don't see any of them as being improved by being done in two d is there really... anyone
1: that maybe you gravitate towards just a character that you like
2: uh well actually i like uh violet the the dark character in Incredibles. I kind of like dark characters.
1: I love her even more in the sequel.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was great. I mean, the whole sequel was really good. Yeah, we loved Um, it. Oh, yeah. So you later went on to work for DreamWorks, reunited with Jeffrey Katzenberg. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like and how different was it versus working at him or working with him at Disney the first time through?
2: Yeah, it it was uh, quite different. When i first started i it was a brand new company, and everything was exciting and they they gave us free lunches and they had a free baked cookies at three o'clock every day <laughs> and um yeah Jeffrey was very very open to our ideas at the very beginning. then as the the company developed, he took more and more control, and the thing was at Disney. Jeffrey had so many things on his plate. He would take a look at what we were working on, give us critiques, and then leave us to go and make the changes, uh, which worked out well. He was very good at finding flaws in the story and saying, fix this, fix that, fix this. Um, But in DreamWorks, he had more time to do it himself. So he, he would say... Fix this, fix that, and the way we're going to fix it is like this. We're going to change this character to this. We're going to have him say that He would actually get into the, the day-to-day changes on the things, and that was not his strength. His strength was not actually making the film. His strength was spotting weak areas and relying on the artists to do it themselves. And so I felt a lot of the, the DreamWorks pictures were not as strong because Jeffrey had too much of his fingers in the pie. Uh, on those pictures.
1: Uh, Last question for you. Um, Will we, in your opinion, see a return to traditional hand-drawn animation after the success of Princess and the Frog?
2: Mm, Not in terms of features, I don't think, at least not at Disney. I know there are a lot of independent animators that are trying to get things started. And I know so many students really want to get into 2D animation. Animation students just, you know, just like I fell in love with it, they do too. There's something about the drawn, drawn animation that's really appealing. That it, It's an appeal that the CG animation doesn't quite have. There's a different, a different appeal to it. So I hope somebody gets the money to do it. But the trouble is they're so expensive and take so much time to do. It's hard to get uh, an executive to really commit to it. And put that much effort and time into doing it, uh, so I don't have a lot of hope in terms of that t v we got the you know the cartoony stuff, though even most of that's all animated overseas somewhere else oh wow, not in the u s anymore There's almost very little let me see is there any two d animation as far as I know, I don't think there's hardly any two d animation being done in the states professionally anymore just little independent projects
0: randy cartwright thank you so much for joining us this week on monoreal radio if any of you would like to see more of randy's work you can check out www.fibble.net that's f-i-b-b-l-e.net i mean he was just unbelievable he was incredible this week
1: Yes, thank you so
0: much, Randy. And we thank you guys for sticking with us. We know this one ran a little bit long this week, but we figured to get Randy Cartwright on the show, you wouldn't mind sticking with us for an extra 20, 25 minutes, however long we went on, longer than we usually do. But uh, please make sure that you check out our social media this week and every week, but this week especially, uh, at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are going to the Disney Studio this Saturday morning coming up. We did talk about it. Um... And we will be at Disneyland for the first time uh, in the days that follow. So we're going to be real active on social media that way, or, uh, th- th- those days. So please make sure you keep it locked on there. And don't forget, check out the website, monorealradio.wixsite.com home. You'll have a link to the Amazon streaming video for this and all of our other films. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see what the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.